0: Welcome to BrainStuff, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, BrainStuff, Lauren Vogelbaum here. On June 26th of 2020, the U.S. House of Representatives passed historic legislation that would transform the District of Columbia into the nation's 51st state. The bill would give the district's current 705,749 residents the opportunity to elect a Congress member and two senators with full voting rights for the first time in the nation's history though the bill still faces an uphill battle in the U.S. Senate. Currently, Washington, D.C. has a non-voting delegate to the House, Eleanor Holmes Norton, who introduced the statehood legislation but has no say in its passage, as well as two shadow senators who similarly cannot vote on legislation. The bill would shrink the federal capital to a small area encompassing the White House, Capitol buildings, Supreme Court, and other federal buildings along the National Mall the rest of the city would become the 51st state. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said in a news conference, for more than two centuries, the residents of Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia, have been denied their right to fully participate in their democracy. Pelosi said that the importance of giving Washington, D.C. full voting rights was demonstrated earlier this month, when the administration of President Donald Trump deployed federal law enforcement agents and National Guard troops against protesters in Washington, D.C. without the residents' approval. House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer said, this is not just an issue of local governance and fairness. It's a major civil rights issue as well. At this point, the legislation is a largely symbolic statement that few expect to pass, at least for now, because it would have to get through the Republican-controlled U.S. Senate where Majority Leader Mitch McConnell indicated in an interview with Fox News that he would deny it a vote. Even if the Senate did approve it, Trump most likely would veto the measure. Trump said to the New York Post in May, why, so we can have two more Democrat senators and five more congressmen? No thank you, that'll never happen. But the current controversy raises another question. Why didn't the nation's founders make Washington DC a state in the first place? But when they decided to create a new national capital, why did they choose to deny residents the same representation in the national government that the rest of the nation's citizens have? As historians explain, Washington's lack of full representation has mainly to do with two things. First, there was a desire on the part of some of the founders to have a strong federal government that wouldn't be dependent upon the state it was in for services and protection. But it also has something to do with Southern slaveholders' desire to have a national capital in their territory with weak self-governance so that slavery wouldn't face any local political resistance. Even after the Civil War, segregationists in Congress fought for many years to keep control over the district's administration and deny any power to the city's largely black population. On that first count though, An early U.S. military mutiny was a primary event that convinced the founders to keep Washington, D.C. from statehood. You see, initially, Philadelphia served as the nation's capital, but the Confederation Congress, which was the predecessor of the present legislative branch, found itself in a difficult situation in June of 1783. That's when Pennsylvania militiamen who'd been furloughed after the Revolutionary War decided to march to Philadelphia to protest the government taking away their jobs and not paying them what they were owed. When these mutineers arrived in Philadelphia, the Pennsylvania government began negotiating with them, but rumors started to spread among the nervous national legislators that the soldiers might loot the government-chartered Bank of North America if they didn't get their money. A committee of delegates led by Alexander Hamilton demanded that Pennsylvania's state government put down the rebellion, but the state government declined saying that the protesters weren't violent. In the view of some historians, that actually was just fine with Hamilton, who was looking to advocate for a central government with its own police powers over its domain. Hamilton persuaded an ally, the then president of Congress, to convene a session on a weekend, even though there weren't enough members around to reach a quorum, so that it would create the impression that they were menaced by the protest. Hamilton then chastised state leaders for failing to protect the federal government against the soldiers and thus putting it in a weak and disgusting position. The handful of legislators then fled to New Jersey, perhaps specifically to add to the drama. A few years later, the Constitution's framers specified in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17, that the national capital should be located in a district, quote, not exceeding 10 miles square that would be controlled by the federal government and not by any state. That meant that members of Congress wouldn't be dependent upon local or state officials to protect them from future mobs of aggrieved citizens. And as future President James Madison noted in Federalist 43, by not being dependent upon a state, Congress would avoid potential for corruption, a quote, an imputation of awe or influence, equally dishonorable to the government and dissatisfactory to the other members of the Confederacy. Southerners and Northerners in the new government worked out a compromise in which the capital would be located in the South in exchange for Southern Congress members dropping their opposition to the federal government, paying off Northern states' debts from the Revolutionary War. The location along the Potomac River was attractive to George Washington because it was less than 20 miles, or about 32 kilometers, from his Mount Vernon estate, and because he had a vision of turning the capital into a prosperous river port and commercial hub. In 1801, Congress passed the Organic Act, which took away district residents' right to vote for congressional representatives. And the following year, granted a charter to a portion of the district, the city of Washington, which was allowed to elect a 12-member city council. The mayor initially was appointed by the U.S. president, though in 1820, the law was changed to allow a mayoral election as well. As for that second count, Washington, D.C. was situated between two slave states, Maryland and Virginia, which helped protect the slavery there from Northern influence. But we spoke via email with J.D. Dickey, the author of the 2014 book, Empire of Mud, The Secret History of Washington, D.C. He said, that district became a bulwark of Southern legislative power and slave trading and human bondage became legion there. And so, with the population in the district largely made up of enslaved people and disenfranchised citizens, the only people who could vote federally or hold federal power of any kind were congressmen elected by voters who didn't live there. In the first half of the 1800s, Washington became a center for the domestic trade, home to one of the busiest markets involved in the sale of human beings. It was the sort of place where free black men, such as Solomon Northrup, whose memoir was adapted into the film 12 Years a Slave, ran the danger of being kidnapped and thrown into the slave pen that was located at what's now the Federal Aviation Administration's headquarters at 800 Independence Avenue Southwest. But we also spoke via email with Chris Myers-Ash, who's the co-author, along with George Derek Musgrove, of the 2017 book, Chocolate City, a history of race and democracy in the nation's capital. Ash explained, it developed as a Southern city, not a Northern one slavery was embedded into the fabric of the city from its inception, and the slave trade quickly became a major industry. After emancipation and a brief flowering of interracial democracy, the city lost its self-government and city leaders embraced Southern-style segregation. In customs and social relations, D.C. was a Southern city until the late 20th century. The issues of self-government and statehood in Washington, D.C. are intertwined with race, Ash says. Though Washington had limited self-rule for much of the 1800s, in the 1870s, Congress took that away. For the next century, Washington was run largely by Southern segregationists such as Senator Theodore Bilbo, a Mississippian who had the unofficial title of mayor of Washington. He once warned in a speech that if voting rights were granted in Washington, blacks, quote, would soon have control of the city. Eventually, Washington's residents did achieve some rights granted to other American citizens. In 1961, the 23rd Amendment gave them the right to vote in presidential elections. And in 1973, they regained the right to elect council members and the mayor. In 1978, Congress passed a constitutional amendment that would have given Washington residents representation in Congress, but it had a seven-year window for ratification. And by the time that expired in 1985, Only 16 states had approved it. In 1993, another effort to pass a bill in the House to grant statehood to Washington failed by a vote of 277 to just 153. But statehood advocates didn't give up. The current legislation, whose 225 co-sponsors include Speaker Pelosi, is on a path to pass on a party-line vote. The new bill gets around the Constitution's Article I, by carving out a space in the capital for government buildings, which would remain under federal control, while converting Washington's mayor to the equivalent of a state governor. The current Washington statehood legislation would create the state of Washington, DC, with the DC standing no longer for District of Columbia, but rather Douglas Commonwealth. Thus, the state would draw its new name from President George Washington and abolitionist Frederick Douglass, thereby differentiating it from the Washington state that already exists in the Pacific Northwest. Today's episode was written by Patrick J. Kiger and produced by Tyler Klang. For more on this and lots of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. BrainStuff is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.